You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Listen up, our managemental loyal listeners. We are excited to announce that this podcast is a member of Jabberjaw Media. Jabberjaw Media is an independent talk and entertainment podcast network. Just this month, Jabberjaw added five new podcasts to the network, including three new music-based podcasts, Poor Taste, a cocktail-focused podcast, and Too Old to Date, a scripted comedy podcast based in New York City. These shows add to the already amazing roster of music-based shows, which have been a part of the network since its inception. Head on over to JabberjawMedia.com for more information on all of the shows. Are you looking for a new set of scrims or a backdrop for your live show? What about merch flags to have at your merch table or online store? Artistflags.com has the lowest pricing and the best quality around. Their prices start at $119 and they can work with you to keep your budget in mind while helping you choose the best material and sizes for your band. Use the coupon code MENTALFLAG to get $30 off your next order. I've personally used them to get flags for Darkest Hour, scrims for Lorna Shore, and many other artists in recent years. So thank you to artistflags.com. So head on over and use the coupon code MENTALFLAG, M-E-N-T-A-L-F-L-A-G, for $30 off your next order. Hi there! Welcome to episode 12 of the Managemental Podcast, a weekly discussion on hot topics in the music biz for the up-and-comers, the brand newbies, the beginners, and aspiring rock stars of tomorrow. Yes, the struggle is real, my friends, but let us help you uncover some of the mystery that is this challenging business of rock and roll. I'm your host, Mr. Blasco, and I am super stoked to be here today. As always, I am joined by my good friend, the co-host from the other coast, a record label owner, fellow artist manager, and mythbuster, Mr. Mike Mowry. Thank you, thank you. Once again, appreciate uh, all the work that you do discovering these amazing topics that we are going to cover. The internet is an amazing place. Exactly. In the last episode, we talked more about record labels and how to score that elusive deal. It was a really cool episode, so check it out if you haven't already. Today, I thought it would be cool to dig into some music business mythology. I uncovered an article written by the ever-so-controversial Mr. Bob Lefsitz, simply titled Myths, on his Lefsitz Letter blog. As usual, we will post all relevant links to the article in the show notes. This is going to be radical, so let's get mental. Oh yeah, baby. So, Mike, congrats on that Darkest Hour first week. Hey, man. Thanks a ton. You know, it's pretty incredible to watch and see how, you know, a well-intentioned and executed plan can really deliver results. 
Now, so that that initially was a crowdfund, and then you licensed it to a label. The label put it out, and then so had people heard the record before it came out or not? You know what's so interesting is the the target was sort of ever moving, and that's one of the things that I've found about you know crowd funds. And I'm sure at some point you and I will will chat about that on the podcast. As you know, I'm pretty passionate about it, and I know you've got your opinions as well. But the intention is you want to reward those fans you know, who are coming in early and supporting you by allowing them to have access to things prior to the general public. The way that it ended up sort of working out was that the physical products that the supporter, the Indiegogo supporters got happened to to land in their mailboxes right around the same time as the record streeted. It wasn't the original intention. And I'd have to look back I believe they did get digital access to the full record a little bit early. But yeah, I mean, dude, it was, you know, it's just been such a perfect storm for for Darkest Hour. You know, I love those guys. You know, they're my first client and it's really nice to watch as their career is sort of waxed and and waned over the last few years to, to really just see how taking matters back into their own hands, having full control really rejuvenated them and empowered them to make a record that frankly all of the other stuff aside they made a record that people want to hear and and that's as simple as it gets some days now and and was this their biggest first week ever or just in a while well let's just say this highest chart position highest chart position wow man that's and and how many how many records in years deep i mean i remember doing ozfest with these dudes so i know they've been around for a while yeah exactly i mean you know listen they're in their 22nd year of existence of course just as when you and i chat about your history with cryptic slaughter you know your first few years are always kicking around in a freaking garage and you know this case dh i mean you know they were hardcore kids playing hardcore shows you know i wasn't involved in any capacity i got involved uh when they started doing ozfest because you know i'd had some experience as a tour manager and you know even though we're peers they kind of looked up to me for for that experience but yeah i mean it's it's refreshing and uh, it's so funny you and i both know and and all you listeners out there i mean you know first week sales are something that of course it, it it's a metric it's something that you can measure and something that you can compare to other artists so we prioritize it in the grand scheme of things I'm not really exactly sure what it matters, you know? I mean, whether our chart position is number two on hard rock or number four, does it really change the amount of money in anybody's pocket or, you know, how the the livelihood of the artist is or how the live show is? Not really. But the reason I mention it is 500 records ended up being scanned the week before the official first week. So our first week numbers were in the 4,000 range. Had those 500 not been early scanned, we would have been at 4,500. It would have actually pushed us up in every single chart that we were in. So it's funny, you know, these are the things that you do sort of concern yourself with because even though it's our highest chart position, it's not even as high as it could have been if all the numbers would have been counted at the right time. But sometimes uh, you don't catch a break or, you know, not everything stacks up the way you want it to. But Again, in the end, it, all that really matters is they wrote a great record. We're working with great people. The fans are reacting, and the band is on a high like they haven't been in quite some time. That's awesome, man. Well, today's going to be kind of epic, and uh, I'm pretty pumped on it. You know, Mr. Bob Lefsitz, uh, he 
he had, he wrote an article on his blog called Myths. And so let's just get into it, man. Well, Myth for, hold on. For, first and foremost, I mean, I want to ch- I mean, you know, Left Sets is such an interesting kind of like polarizing character to some people. And, you know, I don't know a ton about him. And honestly, you know, we've talked about how you need to continue to educate yourself as anyone in this business and ourselves as managers. And, you know, I would say probably for the first half of my career, I wasn't even sure where to look sometimes. But eventually, you know, probably over the last three or four years, I've been subscribing to his newsletter. And it's just so interesting, you know, and the way his newsletter works is he sends out, I feel like he sends out a couple emails a week, which I'm sure also go into these, you know, blog posts. And then every so often he'll he'll do one where it's people's responses to what he had written. And it is, it's just so fascinating to me. You know, here's this guy who's got to be in his 60s, if not 70s, who's managed to honestly keep his finger a little bit on the pulse. What do you think? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you read his articles and you go, okay, man, like this guy's certainly gotten, you know, he's got an opinion, you know, whether you agree with it or not, he knows where he's coming from and he knows what he's talking about. And I'm sure he'd be willing, you know, he'd be willing to debate anybody. But it's interesting because you take a look at that guy and you just go like, there is no way that guy knows what the fuck's going on. But you know what? He does. You know, and then what's so funny, and I knew that we were covering this topic today, but his email today, which I haven't read the full thing, you know, it just starts about some trip to Park City. You know, he's always kind of taking these sort of D-baggy-esque rich guy trips, you know, skiing. That's his big thing. And, uh... I don't know. Sometimes I just always crack up. I'm like, well, you know, what the fuck are you doing? How am I going to relate to you? Not to say that I don't ever go skiing, but um, (laughs) it just, it is. Sometimes it's a little bit of a different world, but I'm excited to dig in and talk about his myths because there's some good ones here and uh, you and I are going to have a good riff on it. So myth number one, according to Bob Lefsetz, sales count. It's no longer whether someone buys your album, but whether they listen to it, that's the relevant metric that everybody seems to ignore as they trumpet irrelevant sound scan numbers. Want to know if an act is truly happening? Check their ticket counts. I mean, very great point considering we just talked about you know, Darkest Hour and their biggest first week. And, you know, again, we said highest chart position. Of course, it's not the highest sales spot. Everybody's sales are down. And what was really interesting is as we were looking at the charts, which are based on the sound scan numbers, there's there's a bunch of different charts that come out every week. There's Hard Rock Chart, New Artist Chart, Heat Seekers Chart, and then there's current top 200. And then there's the overall top 200. And the overall top 200, my understanding is that that's the one that takes into account streams and, you know, all of the other stuff. And so it's just, it was interesting to, to kind of, you know, have to really pay attention to exactly how each thing is measured. But I would agree. I mean, you know, here's Darkest Hour. We'll use them as a great example. You know, we've talked about it in past episodes because they've been out on the road for a month. We had a great first week, but, you know, their ticket counts are up. And, and frankly, you know, we started the tour before release day. It was the original release day. That's why we targeted it um, for that day. But what happened was, you know, leading up to and as we continued to premiere more tracks and as like the hype train and the PR train kept rolling, you know, the ticket counts continued to climb and markets that very early on 
looked holy shit kind of devastating you know going into the regent in la we're looking at the counts like oh shit did we just hang ourselves with our own rope show turns out to be a fucking banger you know it's on release day but it's because that stuff continued to grow so you know not just ticket counts i mean what other metrics can we look at that's really it's the totality but he's right sound scan sale sales don't really fucking matter anymore yeah i mean look uh, my my brief input on this is sales are nice, but um, but he's right. It is a myth that they count and and they don't count. They're 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 nice to have and it's a and it's a good ego boost. But if you're out there and you're grinding, and you're and you're selling tickets and you're selling t-shirts, that's the business I'm in, man. I'm in the t-shirt and ticket business. Myth number two: social media builds careers. Uh, he says. This would be like saying a baseball player's statistics make him a star. No, it's what he does on the field. Social media is a way for fans to stay in touch with their musical heroes. Music always has been and always will be the epicenter of any career. In other words, if you're good enough, you don't have to tweet. You don't have to maintain a Facebook page. Your fans will spread the word and keep you alive. But... You must have your music on YouTube and streaming services. You've got to make it easy for people to access it and listen to it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'd like to look at when the article was written because it's really funny that he mentions YouTube first. I would imagine if this was written in the last year, at the very least, Spotify would be the first thing listed, although YouTube would be there as well. But, I mean, this is a really astute point i think i think he's spot on here obviously demographics is going to play into things and this is where you get an older guy you know looking i don't want to say down you know just looking from a different lens that you and i would look at based on so many of the artists that we manage i mean social media surely has a role in helping build a career i was on the phone with a band yesterday who frankly has a great record and we were chatting and i sort of just asked them like what do you think hasn't gone right and you know they indicated their social presence isn't very good and so career is such an interesting word here because i think in the kind of the development phase of bands career seems so short but then you look at a band like darkest hour you know and some of the other artists that obviously zach wilde you know they've had these really lengthy career so i think this is is an awesome point but i have to disagree i mean you do have to tweet you do have to maintain a facebook page that's been an integral part of what darkest hour was doing i mean i always joke you know if if a band plays a show and nobody takes a picture of it and then nobody posts about it i don't even know if the show happened anymore yeah by and large in this day I, i i do kind of feel like social media is is important um I don't know if it's necessarily a career builder. However, the successful bands that I've worked with have built their careers on social media. So, so here's a here's a good question for you. I mean, obviously, Andy Black, Black Veil Brides, you know, one of your clients, arguably, fucking one of the biggest clients, you know, just got announced on main stage of Warp Tour or whatever. I don't even know if they do main stages anymore, but one of the headliners, if you will, one of the bigger names on Warp Tour. I mean, obviously social media has played a very large part in his career, but it's something about what he and Black Veil and his solo career are doing that, again, I go back to content. You know, I always say great content done consistently over time. I mean, if the content isn't there, then, I mean, I I don't know if I want to go down this route, but, you know, then you end up in sort of Attila land. 
where you know you got the hype train for a minute and then it, it's it's more gimmick than it is career the interesting thing about andy is in relation to myth number two here is that his career was built on social media but specifically on youtube so it's kind of a cross of the things that bob's saying here whereas his music was available on the platform that he suggests. However, I do look at that as that that was social media. You know what I mean? Because people people were talking about it. That first video that he posted on there, there by the time that I had found it, it was it there was hundreds of thousands of, of comments. Like it was social, man. You know? And um so And the part about having your stuff on, you know, your music on here, his his words are YouTube and streaming services. You gotta make it easy for people to access it and listen to it. I mean that's a hundred percent right. You know, you gotta go you gotta meet people where they are, especially if you are, you know, in the developmental stage. You know, you gotta have your finger on the pulse. And it can be, it can be overwhelming. It's overwhelming for all of us who manage artists to try to, you know, maintain Instagram, Instagram story, Instagram live, Facebook, Facebook live, Twitter, you know, Snapchat, Vine, which I don't even know if it exists anymore, making sure we have stuff on YouTube, you name it. It is overwhelming, but you know, SoundCloud, add that one into the mix. Um, Apple Music, Spotify, blah, 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 blah. But you you gotta have it. Bandcamp. <laughs> See, I can just continue yeah. to come up with one after one after one. But you know, granted, you can maybe leave one or two of those out if it's not working for you. But you got to meet people where they are. You never know where that you know lightning in a bottle where that exposure is going to come from. But again, and we can move on from this after after this if you'd like. It comes down to again, Andy, good looking guy, created a great vibe. Whether you know if you're into that style of music, create a great music and. That's why people were gravitating to his YouTube and making those comments because there was something there, not because he was just on the platform. Right. Uh, Myth number three, publicity sells tickets. If this was so, Miley Cyrus would sell out, but she doesn't. And she's gotten more press than anybody. It'd be like expecting Kim Kardashian to fill arenas. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, when you got to put out a blog about myths, you got to take a hard line, you know, left or right. And so much of what we're going to do here is find the gray area of each of these. I mean, publicity alone doesn't sell tickets. And as we've said so many times on the show thus far, there's exceptions to every single rule, you know. And again, like, I am a believer in publicity, you know, whether that publicity is just what we talked about number two you know social media or whether it is more of the formal uh validators and you know sources that give you exposure uh but no it's not the only thing and it won't be something that alone sells tickets but if you're doing something right wouldn't you think that the more exposure that you get would actually help move all of the things that you're doing that would that would be my take yeah i mean look it's a piece of the puzzle right but as a blanket statement He is correct. Publicity by itself does not sell concert tickets. Myth number four, terrestrial radio is forever. It is the dominant listening format. It's still the best way to break a record. But if it's so big and powerful, why can you not name the number one record? Yeah, and actually, as I scroll up and look, this article was written 
in May of 2014. So almost three years ago. So it's actually kind of fun to do this because looking back, it's almost like, you know, we had those predictions in the very first episode that, you know, we released. We had the predictions for the music business in 2017. This is almost like a fun way of of looking and saying, all right, what were the predictions in 2014? At the right. time, this was actually probably a controversial statement. Forever is always a hard word, you know, to put on anything. But at the time, terrestrial radio was still a dominant listening format. Now, and I had this conversation yesterday with someone, I mean, who would have thought that Spotify would be the clear leader in the horse race of everybody else? Why? Because they got playlisting. And playlisting is the new fucking way to to find stuff out. You got your own badass playlist that you update all the time and I go visit. Um, but last night as I was sitting up cranking through emails into the wee hours, I had a playlist on. And lo and behold, there was a couple tracks that really caught my fancy of bands I know I would have never heard of unless they were on a couple of the, the, the playlists that I go to. So Yeah, I mean, look, as a statement and as a myth, terrestrial radio is forever yeah he he's correct that is a myth that there there is there is no truth to that terrestrial radio um certainly in our worlds you know metal specialty radio does not move the needle and then you take a you know a a walk up that staircase to active rock radio i mean look in some cases it helps and it certainly in a lot of cases helps i've i've seen this situation a lot it helps sell records, right? Like you, how many times, man, have you seen this band that gets on uh, active rock radio and that really propels them to, to sell a lot of records? However, that very same band cannot sell a ticket or a t-shirt. This is the same band that you can go to a festival and go, hey, let's keep an eye out for one of those bands t-shirts. Guess what? You've never even seen one. Right. So, you know what I mean? I don't know. I think you're right. And especially in the formats, you know, the genres that you and I deal with predominantly hard rock and, you know, heavy metal and fucking punk rock and, you know, in some senses, whatever else. I mean, that that's the difference between lifestyle. You know, so many of the bands that you and I work with, you get into it because it is a lifestyle thing and you want to attach. You want to do everything you can to support the artist and, you know, show your association with the artist. You're a little bit of a misfit. If you walk down the street in, you know, a Black Veil Bride shirt or Darkest Hour shirt or insert any of the other bands here, I mean, it's not it's not common, you know? I mean, sure, some people will know what it is, but, you know, most of the people will not. And so that's the thing that gets skipped over when bands become famous on the radio is, they're way more common and they've kind of missed that whole we've made the connection on the on the lifestyle and in the clubs and in the deep dark places where our genres really thrive myth number five record companies care about art they only care about money it's a business and if anybody tells you different they're lying yeah it's pretty funny i mean first of all i have a label i care about art I surely care about money. I don't care about money in the same sense that he's inferring. The way I care about money is I want to be able to generate enough that I can continue to support art. He's presumably talking about larger labels. And I think that he, you know, I'll give a really good example. When Refused was was coming back and we were shopping the new record, we sat down with every major label that you can think of. And inevitably... Every A&R person or whatever their title was, you know, because not every company has an A&R person, 
wanted the band. They loved the band. They loved Shape of Punk to come. They wanted to do whatever they could. And lo and behold, they went to business affairs. You know, and at, the, at these small indies, you know, myself included, I mean, I'm just as much business affairs as I am A&R, right? So if I love something, I can probably get it done. And, and what happened was, go to business affairs. Business affairs says, yo, A&R guy, are you fucking crazy? You know, look at this band over the totality of the last 17 years. They've only sold, you know, however many records it is. I know it's cool. I know it's credible. I know it's fucking badass art, but what these guys want, what they need, what they're going to need as adults, you know, from Sweden to make a record, not happening, dude. So inevitably, we ended up at a place where there's an owner, independent record label, punk rock motherfucker, Brett Gerowitz, Epitaph Records, who not only supports art, I think he does care about art. Of course, he cares about money. He's got a staff. He's got an operation to run, but he supports an artist. So, you know, uh, that's a, a little bit of a ramble, but I think this is one that that isn't a hundred percent true. I, I agree with you that on the uh, on the independent scale, those labels care about art because that's the reason that they started. Obviously, they care about business because they wouldn't continue to support art if they if they didn't treat their label as a business. But I believe that he's directly directly referencing major labels because I can attest. They do not give a shit about art. <laughs> and uh, so myth number six. We can't even mention number six. No, we, we should. Well, no, 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 we can't. I'm, I'm actually going to move on to a, a new number six, something that I feel is more relevant for the conversation. Raising a ton of money on Kickstarter means anything other than the money. It's not about money, but how many pledgers there are, and in most cases, especially music, the number of people ponying up is minuscule. They'll support the artist, but they won't help grow the artist's reach and or career. So I assume that you disagree with this. Well, you know what? I I don't necessarily disagree. What's so interesting and in having been involved in, you know, six or seven, you know, successful crowdfunded records you know, when you whittle it down and you look at the P&L, you know, the profit and loss, there really ain't much profit there. You know, and that happens for any number of reasons, but it's not as if any of these bands that I've worked with have gone on and bought anything extravagant or done anything, like, insane. I mean, they're using their core fan base to come in and support something and, you know, support something very early on. Let's use Darkest Hour, and, and you know I apologize to all the listeners if you know we're just beating you over the head with DH, but hey, they're a fantastic band, and you know they're they're the most recent relevant artist to talk about. They won't help grow the artist's reach or career, is what he says. I am going to have to agree with him here. I don't think that their reach was expanded by crowdfunding. Now that said. Because they crowdfunded it, because it was independent, they were able to make an incredible record. They were able to team up with Southern Lord. They were able to like reignite an existing fan base, and in turn, you know, all the people that are reviewing it are giving it great reviews. We're hoping that it helps expand their reach or career, but it wasn't a direct one to one from raising the money. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, look, the, you know, the myth here is is that. Doing a uh, a crowdfunding campaign 
means anything more than just the money that you're raising. And you know what I mean? And he, and and he's right. I mean, it's just like the the point of doing the crowdfund is to raise money so that you can make a record. And it probably doesn't mean much more than that. And look, in the in the case of Darkest Hour though, it doesn't need to mean more than that. You know, they they raised enough money to make a record. That was enough to be able to give you guys the ammo to put that thing out and look what you did, man. Like this deep into their career, you know, they didn't need a, a label per se to help them get their highest chart position. I think that's pretty awesome. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is you watch like friends and family who probably don't go and buy your records anymore, come out of the woodwork to support you in the sense of crowdfunding. Now, mind you, there's probably a lot of people that aren't supporting you, you know, who might just go buy your record. Um, so I'm sure there's a give and a take, but you know, that's, what's always been so interesting to me. I mean, I can't imagine that who knows, I mean, maybe somebody's uncle or listen, my dad, who is a huge supporter of my friends, especially my great and dear friends, like Mike Schleibon from darkest hour, who, you know, has been through many personal things with, you know, me and my family, you know, my dad supported that crowdfund. I can't imagine my dad's rolling down to Best Buy, you know, in lower Alabama and picking up the new DH record when it comes out. And so, like, that's sort of, you know, one of those things where it's like, no, it doesn't actually grow or, you know, the reach. It actually just takes the core base and really solidifies it and then maybe brings in some people who want to support the individuals and this is a new way to do it you know that maybe they weren't capable or comfortable with doing previously so the final myth um that we get into now there there were there were others but i kind of whittled it down so we fit into the uh the format of our podcast so if you want to check it out like i said the uh the link to the original article is in there but the final myth here sound quality counts and i will agree that that is a myth man i mean look don't overthink having to wait till you get like a producer or the right studio and, and and it's like man if your shit's awesome it'll it'll translate beyond that like bands that i have or still work with that i found man their initial offerings were not awesome but there was something going on and I could tell and labels could tell. I mean, man, like even my own, like Cryptic Slaughter, like those records are not sonic masterpieces, but but the vibe was there. And then this is a band that in, still inspires music today, you know, and stuff. So yes, I agree that it is a myth that the, the sound quality of your music counts initially. Yeah, I mean, I agree. There's, of course, audiophiles. And the funny thing is, you know, the longer you stay in the business, the more audiophiles you surround yourself with. And, you know, musicians themselves are, of course, audiophiles. I mean, it's part of what they love to do. Many musicians love to go into the studio and labor over, you know, whether or not everything sounds perfect. And inevitably, you know, I've watched bands come out of the studio. Oh, my God, this sounds so great. And, you know, of course, then it's like, well, where's the song? Um, you can sound as great as you want so i think you you know you make a good point one thing that i you know and he doesn't this is he's talking about you know recorded quality one thing i've found interesting is in the live capacity and again you know it really depends on the demographic obviously if you are a metal band playing to you know people 25 30 and up like you want to sound good but i always find it funny when with all due respect to most 14 to 18 year olds they got no clue what sounds good and what doesn't i remember being 14 
I was into a lot of great hardcore bands that, frankly, if I go back and try to listen now, it is unlistenable. So that quality made absolutely no difference in my life. And so the one point that I do want to make, though, is I've watched bands in a live capacity because they have a sound guy who I don't think is you know, really affecting whether or not their fans coming make a difference, but they feel more confident because they have a sound guy. They know they sound good. They feel more comfortable and they put on a better show. So I think that's just an interesting sort of observation that I've had over the years of working with developing artists. Yeah, man, totally agreed. Well, thanks to everyone for tuning in. We will be back here next week. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Blasco1313. We encourage you to email us any questions or comments you may have for the podcast to me directly at askblasco at gmail.com. Because, hey, people, we do this show for you. Consider it a tool for understanding this ever-so-challenging and confusing business of music. If you have listened this far, much respect to you for making efforts to educate yourselves and taking your future into your own hands. Mike, any final parting thoughts? First and foremost, want to give a shout out to my boys in Carnifex. They got announced on Warp Tour, and it's something we've been gunning for for a long time. So it's nice to reflect on the proud moments of what we do and how we do it. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike O'Loop. As you know, Blasco, my coaching platform signups for 60 Days to Signable is up and running, and we're seeing a really uh, amazing response, and I encourage people to check that out. There'll be a link in the show notes, uh, so get over there if you're you know, remotely interested in taking your bands seriously. And last but not least, do us a favor, uh, rate and review us wherever you listen to this. We're going to say iTunes, but I know people listen to these things plenty of other places, but it helps us with people discovering it. And as Blasco always says, we do this for you. So help us help you. Nice. Thanks, everybody. Absolutely. Peace. Are you interested in what it takes to get the attention of record labels, managers, and other industry professionals who can help your band grow? Let me, Mike Mowry, the CEO of Outer Loop, guide this incredibly challenging journey for you. For the first time ever, I am opening up my extensive experience and knowledge base to aspiring musicians in an educational capacity. 60 Days to Signable is the course, which will run Wednesday evenings from April 19th to June 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Space is limited, and we expect this to sell out quickly. If you're serious about your bands or personal success, there is no time like the present. Visit outerloopcoaching.com slash sign up for all the information that you need. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey, you. Did you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, 
And my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.